To choose a road is to choose a destination. Hop on the train before the train departs the station. And if we lose ourselves in the pressures of the crowd, or if the ones we love aren't able to make it down, I place my bet, I double down on a better love. To train the eyes on the lines of the horizon, to have the dream before the means and fight the fear. And if the wonders of the world should fill your cup, or if the bastards and brutes beat you up, I place my bet, I double down on a better love. I slowly open up my eyes to see a vista once in view, become a blurry outer memory, and I am free. To speak of what I cannot know, and know of what I cannot speak, it's but a sense inside of me. I place my bet. I double down on a better love. My guest today is someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for what I would call a very long time. Uh, he's a songwriter. He's been putting out music under his own name for the last, I want to say, decade-ish. Maybe it's been more. Uh, it has a new album out now called I Am Origami Part 4 Marathon Days. And before that, fronted the band The Lonely Forest, John Van Dusen. It's so awesome to have you join me today. Thanks, man. Hi. Thank you. I've known you for a very long time. Like my first memory of you, <laughs> I, do you remember when we met? Not really. I, <laughs> I want to hear your version yeah. of, the, of our first time meeting. Okay. So it was in Mount Vernon. It was at someone's house, I think like an after church kind of lunch kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I believe you were there with your parents. I think you were like 14 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I remember sitting down next to you because I knew that you were a musician and I asked you the question, like, what are you into? And like typical, like 14 year old angsty answer is like, oh, stuff that nobody cares about. And <laughs> I'm like, really try me. And you said Nirvana. And I think I almost just like, you know, it's like I did a spit take or something like that because like Nirvana was like the reason I got into music. <laughs> yeah. And so I believe that was the first time we met. And um, I always loved that moment. I have absolutely no recollection <laughs> yeah. of that, but my first memories of you, they all kind of mold or sorry, uh, like they're melted into one kind of hazy feeling. It's more of an emotion and it has to do with going to church for the first time where I wanted to go to church because hmm. my parents let me um, 
choose when I got into high school, like ninth grade. And I chose to go to the gathering, of course. Yeah. And I remember I would, I would attend by myself and I would be in the balcony by myself. And I often wore my Deftone sweatshirt with my hood up. Yes. And so my first memories are kind of like that, but also just watching you and Jono and Seth and others, you know, Tara Ward lead worship and thinking to myself, oh, this is actually pretty good. And, you know, of course, the music was the main reason I chose to come to the gathering. So really, my first memories of you is watching from the balcony as you led worship. Yeah. Well, okay, so this song... You wrote the bridge to this song. You wrote the words. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. I love what you did with the with the words of the bridge. I feel like those those lyrics like push the idea of the song forward in a way that I wouldn't have done on my own, which, you know, that's kind of like the awesome thing about collaborating on songs together with people is you, you get kind of two different perspectives maybe on the same idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, specifically the, and I am free to speak of what I cannot know and know of what I cannot speak. It's but a sense inside of me. Mm-hmm. Tell, what do you remember about writing that lyric? Like, how did it come about? Well, I was just kind of pondering upon your your lyrics you'd written, kind of ruminating on this idea. We had you hadn't really um, spelled it out for me, like explicitly or anything. Right. I was just kind of picking up on the vibe, and I think I was trying to bring my own experience into the song. And often when I was younger, it felt like Christians weren't allowed to say out loud that they didn't know. Mm. And that a lot of like evangelicalism and kind of like fundamental fundamentalism, however you want to say it, um, it just felt to me, even when I was young, that everybody just knew what they believed all the time. So it was as if they saw the entire picture, the entire view the entire vista. And for me, I think there's been a lot of freedom as I've gotten older to realize that I can say out loud to another Christian or to a non-Christian, to whoever, I actually don't know what I think about this. And to speak about it, to kind of pull that apart, you know, and and apply apply a sense of just unknown. And it doesn't have to be, you know, laced with anxiety. It can be it actually can be peaceful to not know. And then to know of what I cannot speak. So so not having the vocabulary to articulate what I know deep down is also okay. And that's, I mean, it spells it out in the words. It's pretty simple, but that's really what I was feeling. And that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's so like, I I love the, the humility in that. Um, and... And I think that's just, I, I, that's a thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, just the, it's okay to not know. And it's also okay to like not have vocabulary about what you're talking about. Like the, you, you were coming at it from a particularly kind of humble posture. Yeah, I don't know. And it's like, I don't, I don't mean to like. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I know. I'm, I'm a very humble guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there is nothing like, I, I don't know, like my. I'm finding that I still have these categories or these ways of thinking that are tied to like authority or um, yeah, like strength and authority. And like, this is the thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and you could read those lyrics that way. Like I'm free to speak of what I cannot know and know of what I cannot speak. Like you can say that from a posture of like arrogance, which would be completely disgusting. But I think 
I mean, as I say that, I implicate myself in it because I think that there's parts of me, there's latent parts of me that still do that and think that. I think it's just very, very curious. Can I can I ask you an, or tell tell us a very short story, then ask you another question? Absolutely. Go for it. So I remember once a friend of mine, maybe like six years ago, telling me how they'd had this random conversation with a stranger and my name had come up. And basically this stranger said, oh, I really loved John Van Dusen's early work before he fell away. <laughs> now, if you don't know, if you're listening to this, you don't know anything about my music. I released a couple of solo EPs when I was in high school and then, you know, founded this band, The Lonely Forest. The Lonely Forest was not a Christian band. You know, we said F words in our music. Like we were just, and I, and I, for lack of a better term, did fall away because I decided I didn't believe in God you know, eventually decided I did believe in God, but not in Jesus. And then many years, not many years, but, you know, a handful of years later, found myself back at um, Christianity. And if you look at your first record, Grace, mm. and this record, Half Light, I think some uptight Christians would maybe use, like, I, I kind of liked Joe Day before he fell away. Now, I'm hoping nobody has said this. <laughs> yeah. But have you had any conversations with people who connected with Grace as a worship record? Because I'm actually one of those people, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's one of the, I am not BSing you. And I say, I think it's one of the best worship, like alternative worship records ever made. I love it oh, so much. Thanks, John. But Half, Half Light, you could argue that in a way, we, in a way it is worship music, but it's not, as far as genre is concerned, mm -hmm. a worship record mm -hmm. whatsoever. Right. Have you had any conversations with people who connected with Grace and have had a hard time connecting with Half-Light? Is that something that has come up at all? <laughs> it, it has. It hasn't come up a lot, though. And it's come up mostly through like my emails that I send out. Um, when I first released um, All I Want Is Home, uh, that was one of the singles that came out before the album. I sent out an email to my email list and you know got um got a handful of replies but one of them was really um curious and it was simply like wow that song is a downer <laughs> or i think it was just like wow this song is depressing and uh i was like well i can see that i mean i was very i was depressed when i wrote this song um mm -hmm. and uh and but the, <laughs> the way this we went back and forth emails a few times and then I don't know if this person finally saw like a Spotify like recommendation or algorithm or something like that but the, there was a point in the email conversation where they realized that I'm also the person who wrote what have we done and she's like oh I love that song I'm just gonna go listen to that now <laughs> and I'm like wait so all I want is home is like the most depressing song you've ever heard but you're gonna go now listen to what have we done which I actually think maybe one of the it's probably the most depressing song I've ever written in my life yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just thought the uh the the just that that progression was so funny to me. And if you know, if you're the person who wrote me and you're listening, like I, I loved it, um, genuinely. Like I think and I would love to talk to you. Like it would be really interesting to find out like what was so depressing about this and what was so uplifting about the other one. Um but anyways, mm. um and if that's you, please send me an email. <laughs> uh the but beyond that, no, it's, you know, ah, man, like the album as a whole, when, when I was writing like songs like this, um, like a better love where, you know, questioning 
questioning the idea of hell, um, half light, like questioning certainty, um, a song like all I want is home, which is just like questioning is God there? Is anybody there? Um, you know, I, I assumed that there might be more of that, like more kind of like, woof, like what happened here? Um, and if, and if mm-hmm. that has been people's responses, then they just haven't taken the time to say anything about it. Or, you know, I, I haven't heard much yeah. um, about that. And what I've actually found is that many Christians that I've talked to that have listened to the album have found it like they've found it very helpful. Like I was mm-hmm. talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago who was saying like, it feels like a worship album, but I know it's, that's not what it is. I'm like, yeah, but it question that, like sit with that for a little bit longer, you know, like, what does that even mean? For sure. You're using a different vocabulary than you would on a worship record. And maybe you're asking harder questions using like opaque language on, on occasion. Mm-hmm. But I think coming to God without pretense, coming to your belief without pretense, you know, like setting it, laying it out in front of you, your belief, and then, you know, coming before God um, without pretense, I think is is a form of worship Mm -hmm. just because somebody might not put half light on and like lift their hands in praise doesn't mean it's not a worship record. And I do think what I've found is that records like this are giving people a vocabulary that they've been lacking their entire lives Mm. because we weren't taught to ask these questions and we weren't given the language and the words that we needed to do that. And then, of course, you combine that with the power of music and well-written songs. And I think you're right. I'm sure there are a good number of people who have listened to this record and, in fact, found it strengthening their faith. Yeah. I honestly, I had anxiety about, like, how this album would be received by my friends, you know, um, people I know, or even, like, my family to a degree because it's real like questioning our certainty and but that's that's also kind of where i was in in a way like for me this album kind of represented like my you know all right my farewell from uh evangelicalism you know like i'm out (laughs) here's my album what's funny is in all of that like uh, it's kind of it's helped me process a lot of these things it, I think the process is is ongoing. So it's I don't feel like I've landed like, here's where I am now. It's like, well, right. this is where I am today. But, you know, in the process of all of that, like I was in, I was leaving a church that I'd been a part of for a long time, wondering if I was really even going to be a part of a church anymore. And, you know, here I am now, two years in to, uh, you know, being a part of uh, of a different church, of an Anglican church and finding finding a lot of life there, especially like in the liturgy and in the prayers, mm-hmm. like the physical, spiritual practice that is the li- the liturgy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, has given me words uh, that I never would have thought of by myself. And this album, I think, has is ge- is also created occasions to just have these kinds of conversations with people that has also helped continue to process. I find myself kind of similar to you, like back in Christianity. I have all sorts of baggage and injuries and all those things are there. I come back to, I, you know, and, and this is, you know, the, the, the hook of this song. I place my bet 
I double down on a better love. And I do. I just do. You know, like I, I believe that that God's love is stronger than my resistance to it, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. and that I don't need to have everything figured out. That's kind of I don't know, there's a simplicity there. And I'm okay with being there right now. <laughs> yeah. I think everything you just said was beautiful. <laughs> so thanks, John. <laughs> So when you wrote this song, you start with the quote, to choose a road is to choose a destination, which obviously represents what the rest of the song is um, working to kind of unravel. Is that obvious though? I I mean, I I think it's kind of cool that you caught that, but uh, I wonder if it is obvious to people. I I wonder if they pick that up. Who knows? Um, It's it's obvious to me when reading the lyrics because it's in a quotation, Mm. um, to choose a road is to choose a destination. It's... To me, it's obvious, but I'm curious. Um, it's a very simple question, but why did you write this song? Like, yeah. were you were you thinking about these things for so many years that you finally sat down and put pen to paper, or did you just have a bad day mm-hmm. and then this is what came out, or did somebody actually say to you to choose a road is to choose a destination? I'm curious what prompted the writing of the song. Man, it's like all of those things. I'm pretty sure, I know I've heard someone say that phrase or something very similar to it in a sermon. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I wrote, we wrote this in, I think, the spring of 2020. Mm-hmm. I'd been kind of like deeply processing just kind of my own, my own kind of faith crisis over the last, gosh, three or four years, you know, coming, coming out to that part. And one of, you know, one of those things that changed for me was just my notions of of what hell is, um, and the uh, just the idea coming back to like it's hard to reconcile notions of uh, when we say things like God is love, we talk about unconditional love, and then within reformed theology specifically, the thing that we're saved from is not so much hell itself, but we're saved from God's wrath. Uh, Like we're saved from God to God. And for me, those, those ideas are hard to, they're, they're hard to hold together Mm -hmm. in in a way that leads me towards something that could be called adoration or worship or yeah, adoration, affection. Like how do, how do I, how do I feel affection for someone that, you know, is kind of looking there or standing there looking at me like for to you know any 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 step wrong uh, to not do things in a particular way and then boom I'm you know I'm out I'm on my way to hell mm-hmm. and you know okay maybe that's like an extreme view of that but I think that's in the psyche of a lot of people it was certainly in the in my psyche and so when I started to think through like what is a all loving God look like? Um, I finally read uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell. That was like on the contraband list, you know, at, mm-hmm. at Mars Hill. <laughs> oh, poor Rob Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually found it to be super helpful. And then you kind of, you know, go a step further and find, okay, like this is not like some out on a limb um, position. Like there's, this has been 
you know, like a, the concept of hell is mysterious B yeah, the, the, it's not like there's been one position on it in the history of Christianity. Right. And that kind of opened things up for me in a little bit of, or not in a little, in a big way to just think like, okay, wait, like the anxiety, like my hell anxiety could be just related to, I've been in this tribe for a certain period of time mm-hmm. and, uh, and for a long period of time, um, like through my formative years into my adult years. And now I'm kind of like, okay, where am I? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this kind of just came from thinking about that. But then like, I don't know. I also would say like, I wasn't really thinking about it. Like these lyrics just kind of came out and I understand that, you know, it was kind of funny that it started with to choose. Actually, it started with, I placed my bet. I doubled down on a better love. When I wrote that, I originally envisioned like Jeff Tweedy singing it and just like, it could be a really cool, like Wilco song. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just kind of kept writing and kind of moving the song in different ways. I kind of got stuck. And that was when I, you know, reached out to you. I was like, Hey, John, I think it'd be fun to write a song together. And I'm, I'm kind of halfway there on this one. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how it, how it started. Cool. It's interesting because I think some people in response to the kind of like unsettled position they find themselves in when they especially start to ponder, like, you know, unconditional love and hell, those types of things. There's lots of different responses to it, but a common response is to just conclude that there is no hell. Mm -hmm. And personally, I have not gone that far. For me, the bridge kind of says it all for me, because the truth is, I don't know if there's a hell. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I feel about that. And while there is some kind of like visceral language used by Christ and others about what hell looks like and feels like if there is a hell. Um, I haven't decided for myself if I think that's literal literal or not. Or sometimes I think about C.S. Lewis's, um, you know, heaven is a place where the person in their free will says, your will be done to God. And hell is a place where God says to the person with their free will, your will be done yeah. to the, pers- the person's will. And that if hell if it exists, it's a space in which God is not. And that's a place that I, where I've landed. That um, yeah, It could be that life just spins into some chaotic atmosphere that becomes hell or... But the, my point is, I have friends who've said, there's no hell. Mm-hmm. There can't be a hell. There's no way. And I feel like me personally, I can vacillate between all the different beliefs depending on the month. And <laughs> to me, I don't have to know. Mm-hmm. I just don't have to know right now. And my question for you is, do you feel like you need to know if you don't know right now, are you hoping that before you die, you land on a conclusion or hmm. are you able to allow this to um, remain unsettled? Yeah. I love this question. I am, at least for for me, like I'm completely okay with not knowing the answer to this question. And I think that's one reason why this song is on the album. And yeah, it's not a, I don't know, so much about what like the album itself is dealing with is just kind of like the role certainty plays in faith, you know, Mm -hmm. like is, is a belief in hell necessary, like a necessary requirement for faith in Christ? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And if it is like, is that even faith in Christ anymore? Or is it just like, we've got this set of kind of like prerequisites and requirements and check boxes. And that means, okay, I, I, I follow Christ. 
I don't know, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't find myself needing to, to have an answer to this question. I, uh, I lean more towards kind of what you're talking about. Maybe the absence of God. I think what, what, what I found compelling in Bell's, in Rob Bell's book was just the idea that, you know, hell would be kind of a condition of a person who's just so enthralled with themselves that they can't see God. Um, why would, you know, like, and, and he paints the picture like they're, you know, there's the, 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 the gates. It's been a while since I've read the book. I'm not going to pull all these references up, but basically he's talking about like, <laughs> you know, the hell is kind of this place outside of the gates where the trash is burned. Right. And that's, right. you know, his, his position was you're well, the gates are open. You're welcome to come in uh, at any time, but in the gates, this, there's a society here, um, that, kind of operates in a certain way and God's interest is in protecting that. And if you're not into, if you're not into that, if you don't want to be a part of that, then it, you know, outside the gates is kind of the more appealing option. You know, that it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting thought. <laughs> like I, I think that's probably the best we can do on this side though. Right. Also the most Im- like impactful things, uh, on this topic has been coming back to Lewis in uh, the last battle uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, at the very end, when they you know they go through into the new Narnia, and there is the there's they they happen to have that one. I, I think was he a Kalorman or I forget what uh, he was. Basically, he was a member, or he was part of the country that was worshiping Tash and against Aslan, and he was a devout worshiper of Tash. Anyways, they go into the hut and going into the hut meant that's where, you know, you, you go through into uh, Narnia and they all end up on the other side. And this worshiper of Tash, you know, uh, is like, why am I here? What am I doing here? Like Aslan is here. I shouldn't be in this place with Aslan because Aslan is my enemy. And Aslan looks at him and says, you know, well, what you worshiped as Tash, you actually worshiped as me. And he's, he's getting into like the way that, that he did it, his, um, his, it wasn't so much his devoutness. It was the character of his faith in Tash was actually could only have been rendered to Aslan and, and no one else. Hmm. And that blew my mind. <laughs> well, uh, I, I do think when you dig into Lewis a little bit, um, there's, he's, he said some things that make evangelicals a little, it's absolutely but, true. Yeah. Yeah. But like what we're talking about now. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. And so I just remember it feeling scandalous, like, oh my gosh, like this yeah, is, yeah, for this, sure. this came from Lewis. Like, oh, this is very interesting. And so, you know, I love that even someone like Lewis is obviously wrestling with it mm-hmm. and also kind of playing with it, like creatively. Like, let's have someone who thinks, who we would think shouldn't make it and someone who they themselves thinks they shouldn't make it, make it. You mm-hmm. know, like that's, uh, it's a very interesting. I like that. Kind of continuing the conversation about hell a little bit, but um, if you're okay moving, I want to move. I want to ask you something, basically. Go for I, it. Yeah. When I had a son, um, my perspective on hell changed a little bit. Hmm. And obviously, you have two uh, lovely daughters, and and so I think. Maybe we can relate on this, but um, I thought about myself and my love for Benji, my child. I thought about how, let's say at age 40 and I'm, you know, 75, 
he decides to forsake me. He doesn't want anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't want to be near me. And the metaphor runs dry, but essentially my love for Benji is great enough that if he chose to forsake me, I wouldn't choose to punish him for that. Yeah. I wouldn't want him to suffer, especially endlessly. I thought about that, like, if that's how I feel about Benji, how does God, this, you know, infinitely good, all-knowing God, the uncaused cause, all the language we have for God, feel towards us? That, for me, was a really important question to ask myself Mm -hmm. about myself and about God. And I think, I mean, obviously being a parent changes a lot of things in how you perceive the world, but I'm curious if you've ever thought about that with your children, but also how are you going to talk to them about this stuff? Because you were raised Christian like me, correct? Mm -hmm. So what type of conversations are you going to be having with them? Yeah. Oh man. I had a very similar experience. Um, Not, not when they were born. It was again, like it was kind of in the process of, of sorting through all this stuff. But the thing that, that kind of hooked me was again, it's probably reacting to more of our kind of like, you know, our, our, our catechisms, our systematic theologies, everything being predicated on believing right. And it was, is the same thing. Like when it's relational, if I were to look at my daughters and say, you must believe the right things about me if you want to go to college, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that would be a, that would be insanely cruel thing for a father to do, especially to his children, because a, like my, you know, my kids are, well, they're, my girls are about to turn 14, which <laughs> is crazy. Uh, but when they were, you know, when they were younger or even now at age 14, like I'm, I'm 45, my kids are 14. There's no way that they know, you know, that they have like the right beliefs about their dad. Like there's only so much that they know. And in that context, like in the context of that relationship, it's almost like belief becomes irrelevant. Like it's the, the relationship is there my love is not predicated on their right belief on me, uh, about me. You know, do they think the right things about me? Well, no. Do I think the right things about them? Probably not. <laughs> you know, like depends on the day. And so for, for me, it kind of went that way and, yeah. and it was easier like, okay, how much more like our infinitely good creator uh, and the distance between us even further, like, okay, that like these ideas kind of fall apart. Um, how do I, talk to them about this that is that's a good question i remember we 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 had um neighbors years ago uh we lived in woodenville the girls were good friends with them they were a mormon family and i remember chloe especially being like very very concerned for the eternal future of her mormon friends and you know this was kind of before I was going through all of this. And so Mm -hmm. honestly, it was hard to know how to walk my daughter through that at that point in time, how we would talk about it today. I'd probably be, we haven't talked about this recently. So this is, this is a, this is an interesting question because this conversation hasn't really come up. I would have no qualms with saying, I really don't know where I stand on this. I, I find myself kind of more on, I kind of where the song is getting, you know, kind of towards the bridge, right? Sure. And that it's okay to not know. I think we can look at, you know, we can go back to, to scripture. We can say, here are the references. Here's what it says. We tend to interpret that in a certain way. Um, there are other interpretations as well. So 
on this particular topic, I think it's okay to have an open mind and not have to figure it out. That's what I think I would like to say to my daughters. Yeah. Now, <laughs> when it comes up, the, you know, kids have a way of like bringing things up in, in ways that you just don't expect to. And, and that mm-hmm. like the context for which this conversation would come up could come up in a completely different way. And so who knows, like uh, that famous quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. I mean, I can think of a punching in the nose scenario. Oh, sweet. <laughs> what if one of your daughters converts to Scientology? Or Oh, man. That's not a good comparison because Scientology, from even from an outside perspective, is fairly toxic. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe let's let's choose a um, another religion or belief that is maybe less or not outwardly toxic, like Judaism mm-hmm. or maybe just flat-out atheism. Mm-hmm. So let's say at 18, Chloe's, mm-hmm. sorry, I realize that we're making this very personal, but like, <laughs> sorry, Chloe, <laughs> I think, I do think it's very, it's, yeah. I would imagine those who listen, especially those with kids, um, mm-hmm. who find themselves in similar place would want to hear you talk about that. Like, what do you say? What do you encourage them to do? What do you, what type of questions do you, do you ask when somebody completely leaves the faith? Mm-hmm. Yet you still hold that like, hey, I do believe in more or less like a Judeo-Christian God. Mm -hmm. And I believe this God loves you. And I believe this God wants to know you. And there might be something after this life that that centers around that knowing of this God. Yeah. I realize I'm opening it up. It's it's a really big thought, but I just, does it change how we talk to someone when um, they're not in a similar place as us, but they're actually like, they've left it altogether? I think what changes... I think this is a great question. I, I want to know. Well, so I, I think the the plain answer is like, okay, at that point, it's less about like, a my role is not to convince people of things. Like that that's the first thing. Like I'm not here. I'm not placed in this world to like convince you of something. You know, the other part, like I think we have our presuppositions, and this is kind of woven into evangelicalism that we're supposed to have it figured out. Mm-hmm. Like you're supposed to believe the right things and you're supposed to know what you believe. Like what you were talking about, you know, like when you were young, it looked like everybody just knew precisely what they believed all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not anywhere in there. And our timelines are our timelines, meaning like our experiences are our experiences. I do believe that our experiences are meaningful. You know, we are beings with experience. Um, each person's experience is their own. And I think God sees that too. You know, like the reasons why if someone would say, I don't believe in this anymore. You know, every conversation I've had with someone who said that, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hurt in there mm-hmm. or there's disappointment. Mm-hmm. Where I land with it is like, I think God sees your hurt and disappointment. Mm-hmm. I know that I, I might not even like say that out loud to them other than like, I, I just hope like my ability to listen in that moment can be healing in some way. And so for me, it's transitioning to listening um, and and then trusting that, you know, all right, God sees and God knows they're carrying a heavy load. And that is, you know, that is meaningful in a certain way. Yeah. The other, the other part of that too is that question I ask myself all the time is, you know, I have a bunch of friends who, if you sit down and you have a couple beers with them, you're going to find that they deeply care about a lot of the same things that Christ cares about. And some of these people are like doing things about it, like <laughs> more than I am. Mm-hmm. And if you 
prod deeper. You know, they they well, the way I put it is like, I see love for the things that God loves, and I see them despising the things that God, that at least we we know that God despises from what's in the text. What does that mean? And how does that work itself out? And this, you know, I I just come back to like, I think it's possible that there's a lot more people that are the people of God than what we might point out or what we may think are the people of God and then what even they themselves know as Hmm. the people of God. Can I ask? Can I ask a non-hell question? Absolutely. Yeah, we've been on this topic for a while. This has been really yeah. good, John. Yeah. Good question. Sorry, everybody. Good question. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we pissed somebody off out there, and that's fine. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just there's I lots of questions. It. So, musically, I remember you throwing the the band uh, "Not a Surf" into the mix. Oh, you yeah. were talking about like, hey, I kind of have this "Not a Surf" vibe, and I remember as I was kind of demoing parts. And writing in my office, I was obviously thinking about REM mm-hmm. and maybe Travis and Doves. There were some different bands, but I'm just curious, like, what are you, what were the musical touchstones for this song? So for, I mean, the first one for me, like I said earlier, was, was Wilco. Yeah. Like I imagine that downtuned kind of boxy acoustic guitar from camera on uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Mm-hmm. And this song certainly... I mean, I think I wrote it on my old boxy Gibson guitar, so it had that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. But my voice does not have that. The character in Jeff Tweedy's voice works with that so well. Like in the way that he's so kind of understated, yet like present. You know, my voice is just, it's a different instrument. It's a different tool. And I still feel like I'm trying to figure out where it fits in the grand scheme of a song a production with drums and bass <laughs> and guitars and stuff like it's really easy to overpower my voice um with music really? yeah oh I, I think so okay yeah i don't think so i mean your voice your voice is like super strong like you you always kind of come through i was lo- i loved like when you sent the demos back I'm like oh man john has an amazing voice thank you i was listening to the song um before we started um the record this this podcast and it actually was the, I think the first time I listened to the song on headphones, mm. like, and I've listened to it in my car and mm. on my stereo and it was a lot, it's a lot, it's very smooth. There's something soothing about the tones. And I'm sure that has something to do with the production side of things, but mm-hmm. I usually don't make music that is smooth tonally. Yeah. Um, I tend to have these kind of jagged edges and, and really kind of noisy choices and this, it also has a very wide sound spectrum. Like yeah. it, it, as I listened on the headphones, that's the best way. There was, there's an expanse of sound. Mm-hmm. And that's Ryan. That's, that's Ryan that Carberry. Ryan? Yeah. Um, well, and Ryan, so Ryan, it's interesting that you say that because Ryan is, for anyone who's listening, Ryan is the guitarist and producer uh, of the band Ivan and Alyosha. He's actually one of the songwriters there too. And Ryan loves going back to like, classic 60s production you know mm-hmm. focus on sonic character and he does like he he the way he layered and the way he thinks like he does smooth things out in a really interesting way in a way that i've never worked with anybody else who who does that especially with like my voice and my songwriting 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I kind of come from, I think like this, a similar perspective as you, like I'm, when I'm demoing stuff at home, like I'm trying to figure out ways to like dirty it up and like, and Ryan was always kind of like applying sandpaper to that. Yeah. Smooth it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so the musical choices, yeah, doves actually became one. Um, it, it didn't start there, but doves was, was definitely in there. Trying to think of who else. Yeah, not a surf. Ryan specifically, as we were trying to figure out, like, because another thing that was happening is as you and I were writing the song, we were trying to figure out the arrangement as well. Like how, where, how does the song move and where does it go? And one of the things that you that that you brought to it specifically was the um the second time you hit the bridge, it's a different chord progression. Like it modulates. Again, like that's not something I normally am thinking about. So I I've always like, oh yeah. That's a cool thing. John brought that in. And it's totally like, uh-huh. if I were to do it, I feel like it would be so cheesy. But the way you did it, I was like, no, this works so good. See, see, I have to say this. I, I wouldn't do that either on my own. It's, have you ever watched somebody play a video game? Yes. Like a, a hard video game, like Zelda, like an old Zelda game. The person watching, it's so easy for them to see things that the person playing is not seeing. Mm-hmm. Like, especially mm-hmm. when you're trying to solve a bigger puzzle. And I think it's similar with co-writes. It's that, I, if I was in your position, I probably would not have changed those chords. It's just that I came in with a fresh set of ears and immediately was like, oh, let's just tweak that one little thing. And so you're giving me too much credit. Yeah. It has, it has... <laughs> no, but it's it's awesome because it's like, it's almost like the stakes are, I don't want to say it this way, but it, I guess it's the way I could say it. Like the stakes are lower. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this. He can take it or leave it. Like it doesn't have yeah. to keep it. You know, it's like, exactly. maybe it just doesn't work. And you have a little bit more kind of creative freedom to just like try something you might not ordinarily. One thing I love about the arrangement in this song is that the, I mean, the better love, like I place my bet, I double down on a better love is the hook, mm-hmm. but I would not call it a chorus. Yeah. I remember us it's, talking it's, about this. It's, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a half chorus. And then the bridge that I wrote is almost like a chorus, but it's not a chorus because it's a bridge, but then we repeat it twice. Yeah, And so it is a strange, in, in, a, in a simple way, it is a strange song. Yeah. And I I love how the second time you hit the bridge, it's elevated. Like it really lifts itself mm-hmm. and it's it's almost triumphant in a weird way. Yeah. And it's like there's a victory in that. Yeah. And then it just lands, you know, it comes back like Ryan, one of the things Ryan, you know, was was kind of pushing for was like, well, when we get to the the you know, I place my bet, I double down on a better love. Like every time that comes up, it's like, how many times do we sing this? <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like, but that is the hook. So we want to sing that, that more. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, that's why the song, like it is, it does kind of have that triumphal, you know, lift when we get to the bridge the second time, but then it, it comes back to, I think mm-hmm. that's the point where we sing the place my bet double down on a better love, I think four times in a row at the end, which is yeah. more than any other time that came before it. And so like, he was very careful about like, what do we want people to kind of walk away from with this song? And it is kind of a journey, like in a, I mean, that can sound cliche, but it does like, it kind of moves around. It's not, mm-hmm. it's masquerading as like your kind of average song structure, pop song structure, but it's, it's not really. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
I've always like admired you as a songwriter, as a person. It's been awesome to watch your own progression through, you know, the garage EP days through Lonely Forest, post Lonely Forest, and now kind of the the four I Am Origami uh, records, and just to see you keep going and keep writing, and your honesty and I don't know your honesty and transparency in your music uh, has always been, you know, like no you, when you know someone and you see kind of the artist person, like there's just no disconnect between who you are and what I hear in the music. And I appreciate that a ton and uh, respect that. I aspire to that. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. This has been, this has been great. Well, you know, I almost, I almost want to say see you in hell as the, <laughs> uh, but I don't mean that to the, to listeners. It was a bad dad. It's not even a dad joke. It's just a bad joke. So, well, thanks, man. Thanks, man. Let's, uh, we'll talk soon when it's done. Yep. All right. Bye. Place my bed, I don't
Thanks for listening. The Half-Light podcast is about my album Half-Light. And if you don't yet have a copy and if vinyl is your thing, head over to my Bandcamp page at joday.bandcamp.com and use the code podcast, all lowercase, one word, to get 20% off your copy of Half-Light. It's printed on 140 gram black vinyl, and it sounds fantastic if I do say so myself. If you want to stay up to date with what I'm doing, email is the best way. Head over to joedaymusic.com and sign up for my email list. I'm already working on the next thing, so there's going to be plenty to talk about in 2023. If you're interested in booking me, whether with my full band or just me in a living room or backyard, email booking at joedaymusic.com. On Instagram and Twitter, I am at Joe Day. You can find me there. And the Half-Light podcast is produced, edited, and scored by the one and only Jason Wagner. Jason does lots of other fun and interesting things with sound, and you can check out all of those at his website, oralfixation.me. A-U-R-A-L-F-I-X-A-T-I-O-N dot me. That's it for now. Talk to you later.